I took that money so seriously, which I don't know if every founder does that, where to me that $1.7 million was like maybe the last money I'll ever raise. I have a moral commitment to 100x this cash to the investors, and I will get that done. And also, you know, I have a wife and a four-year-old daughter. I do not want to go back to like being a head of product or a PM. Like this is my one shot, finally in America, the right idea, the right team, et cetera. And so I think that conviction almost gave me this like sense of like, I do have things to lose, but also the upside is so great. And like everything kind of has led me to this point of towards this opportunity that I was super optimistic about where, where this could go. It was basically like your life's mission. This was the thing that you were going to do. So you had a plan and you were going to make it work. No matter what kind of roadblocks got in your way, like you were going to solve all the problems. Stick with it. Welcome to The Peel, where we explore the world's greatest startup stories. I'm your host, Turner Novak, founder of Nana Capital, your favorite creator's favorite venture capital firm. I'm excited to share this conversation with Sid Yadav, the co-founder and CEO of Circle, the all-in-one community platform for creators. Sid and his co-founders, Andy and Rudy, started Circle in 2019 and have grown it to $16 million in annual revenue by the end of 2023. We go into the past, present, and future of the creator economy and why he thinks it's actually booming despite the negative sentiment in Silicon Valley. Sid has a wild story, immigrating from India to New Zealand to the US and then joining Teachable as the second employee to lead design. When he started Circle, the CEO of Teachable, Ankur Nagpal, told me he invested 90% of his liquid net worth in Sid's pre-seed round. Sid then takes us through Circle's journey, including racking up $30,000 in credit card debt before launching the first product, why Circle manually onboarded the first thousand customers, how he raised his first three rounds, including a Series A from Tiger Global in 2021, why he writes monthly investor updates, tactics for running a remote first team, building a community around the product, and how Sid convinced Wade Foster, the CEO of Zapier, to be his coach. Wade was a prior guest of the show and said I had to have Sid on. You won't hear many sound bites, but Sid is a high-integrity founder sharing actionable advice from the arena, and the best founders in the world are following what he's doing. I love this conversation, and I think you will too. Shout out to Dave Ambrose of Bungalow, an investor in Circle and listener of the show, for first introducing me to Sid. Thank you to Dave and Encore for suggesting some great questions. Now, let's jump in after a quick word from Deal. Sid's story is a perfect encapsulation of the American dream, from immigrating to the US during college and eventually starting his own company. A lot goes into the immigration process, especially if you're a global business. That's why today's sponsor, Deal, that's D-E-E-L, is here to help. Deal is a global HR and payroll platform that streamlined the employee visa and immigration process. Did you know acquiring visas for employees where you don't own an entity can take months and cost up to $200,000? Deal sponsors employee visas for you, so you don't have to worry about payroll, employee benefits, or immigration. From temporary work visas, green cards, H-1Bs, and more, Deal has you covered. Plus, their in-house immigration team handles all the complex admin work and offers one-on-one support so your business is compliant every step of the way. Whether an employee is relocating or you're empowering employees to work anywhere across over 30 countries, Deal gets it done faster. Click the link in the show notes to book a demo and streamline your employee mobility with Deal today. Thank you, Deal. And now, let's talk to Sid. Sid, how's it going? Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on the show. So I wanted to, to kick things off. I believe this is how we connected. You had a viral tweet on X, formerly known as Twitter, where 
you said the perception is that the creator economy is dead, but you actually argued it's not and creators are crushing it. Can you unpack that? Yeah. So I, I feel like maybe much like you, I live in kind of two worlds. I live in the tech world. I live in the creator world. And a lot of times I, f- I felt like in the past year, the perception of the creator economy in the tech space has not been very positive. And, you know, I've been kind of thinking about like, why, why is that? Because what I see day to day at Circle is like super, super positive. I'm just exposed to all kinds of like stories about people making something out of nothing. I think in the past year, there's been a consolidation of a lot of creator economy startups that were likely overfunded. And there are likely a lot of them in the 2020, 2021 era when we had the, you know, the interest rate bubble, right? And thinking about that got me realizing that there's a bit of a narrative that's, that's come up that needs to be corrected. When I think of the real creator economy, I think of almost the GDP of the internet, right? Who are all of the creators online who are monetizing? Is that number growing? So are there more creators and are they making more money over time? And so if you look at all the the various uh, monetization channels available to creators to start with um, YouTube revenue, look at sponsorship deals, look at uh, products like Circle, Patreon, Kajabi, I just feel like the ladder is just on and up and up and up and up. Um, and that doesn't get talked about often and it doesn't get, no one, no one's like correcting the narrative. Maybe explain what is a creator or who is a creator when we use this word. Can you just kind of explain that and get us in that mindset? What's interesting is like, I feel like I was a creator from the years like 2005 to 2012, but that word did not exist. Right. I didn't call myself that. I would call myself a blogger. And in 2014, I joined a startup called Teachable. And we sold to educators. Again, the word creator was not very popular. Um, And it's only popularized, I feel like, in the last three years. I think what it started to refer to is with the internet, you have essentially unlimited distribution available to entrepreneurs who want to build and grow an audience and then monetize that audience, right? And I think YouTube kicked it off in a big way. I think, obviously, Instagram, TikTok. Um, Twitter, these have all been kind of like top funnel channels for folks to build and grow the audience. Um, And then you have side channels like Twitch, um, even OnlyFans, if you were to look at that as a a channel. And so what that's kicked off, especially post-COVID, is you just have a bunch of people around the world who are building audiences online. And then some of those people are also making money from those audiences, either directly through like YouTube ad revenue or indirectly through selling courses, uh, building community, selling events, um, you know, starting a VC fund. Um, and so it, to me, it always feels like eventually the entire world <laughs> will be full of, full of creators. It, it, just, it just feels very inevitable to me. And what's exciting is to get, a, get to build a product for, for that potential. Yeah, I just kind of think about it as creators are the, just the new business. Like if you think about what did the internet replace, it replaced something like the yellow pages. How did most businesses used to get a lot of business, like revenue customers from the yellow pages or from all these other offline things that are now on the internet? Uh, that's a great point. I feel like the, the, the lines between creator business and brand are blending, right? So you see creators like Mr. Beast launching businesses and launching brands, and then you see brands with creators at the forefront, whereas before 
you know, I feel like the world was fairly institutionalized as in institutions were the brand, but not so much the creator. And so, yeah, it's just a melting pot of a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And we almost had, when you think about an individual that has influence that used to be more traditionally a celebrity, like a movie actor or TV personality and the internet kind of made anyone able to reach that kind of, you know, status. Like it's, it's not necessarily a new thing of like somebody making a business around their personal brand. Like, I don't know. I mean, Ford was the guy's last name and it's a car company. Like it's a little bit of like a, maybe a weird example, but going back like over a hundred years, like it's always, that's how it's always worked. Or maybe those are some of the best businesses where you infuse your personality into just the core operations of the business. And then that leads to better margins over time, like more profitability, whether it's people will pay more, you can acquire your customers more efficiently or faster. Like it's an interesting thing to have in the toolkit. It's a mutually enforcing feedback loop, right? People build businesses or people build value. The value builds a business. And then the business kind of almost props up a person like a Ford, right? And we've always had that. I think what's changed now is the internet as a channel of distribution, a channel of reach and potential um, has just opened, opened up a lot of this potential to a lot of people around the world. And, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in a very small town in New Zealand, a, a town called Queenstown. And the only reason I get to do what I do is because I discovered and fell in love with the internet back in uh, 2003. We should go back then, the early days. You mentioned growing up on welfare in New Zealand, you discovered the internet, discovered this whole thing. How did that happen? Yeah, honestly, by, by such an accident. So I was born in India. At age 10, my parents decided to immigrate to New Zealand. My dad applies for a green card in New Zealand, having never visited, just online. Again, speaking to like the internet uh, part, and he gets it. Uh, and next thing we know, we're, you know, we're moved, like packing our bags, selling our assets, and moving to a, a very small town called Invercargill, which is at the, the southern tip of uh, New Zealand, uh, having never visited. And he, he always kind of looked up or imagined New Zealand as a, as a place to be, as a destination, never having visited again. I think it was a lot about just also kind of the tourism industry, the landscape, the scenic beauty, the, the lifestyle, et cetera. Yeah, that's fair. So you kind of became a creator at one point. Yeah. So, so, so what happened is age 10, we moved over to New Zealand, you know, kind of restarting life. My parents don't have a job yet. So they're living on welfare. Uh, my dad, we discover the concept of like a yard sale. That's where we get our first computer. I think it cost him like maybe $50. It was like a Windows ME computer. And I was getting kind of bored having just moved to this country. I didn't have um, too many friends yet. And I just get sucked into the internet. So I start building uh, my first website was on Angel Fire. If you remember Back in the day, we had like GeoCities and Angel Fire and Lycos. And yeah, it, it was like the, the even jankier version of GeoCities, basically. The ads, I think the ads were even worse than on GeoCities. Yeah. So I, I built my first website and I was like, this is awesome. One thing leads to another. And before I know it, I'm, I'm like deep into like the concept of a weblog. Super accidentally, I just run into like this, this tiny community of like bloggers online. I was, I was 12 or 13. And so I start a blog and then I start discovering 
products, companies. I learn about Silicon Valley. I learn about, you know, the founding stories of like Google and Sun and Microsoft. And I was a very curious kid. And so I started writing about companies and just writing about products. And I think TechCrunch might have started somewhere around 2004. I fall in love with TechCrunch as a reader. And then I realized that I have a lot of time on my hands after school. Why don't I start writing about the stuff that TechCrunch writes about, which is which are essentially you know products, venture rounds, um, sort of broader macro sort of tech movements. Um, so I start a blog called it's called Ref2.org. Ref2.org. Okay. Yeah, this is the sort of meant a signpost to the Web 2.0 movement, if anyone can remember <laughs> that. And so I start a blog, and no one knows my age online, right? Because did they know your name? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's all under my name. I never share my age and, and I just start writing like five to 10 blog posts every single day. I start accumulating readers. The blog grows through SEO. I start being almost the first to write about a bunch of great products. So as, as the first person to write about Wix when it first launched, I'm one of the first few people to write about YouTube of Weebly. And, and the reason why is it's very hard to get on TechCrunch back in like 2005, 2006. So a lot of entrepreneurs would go to a smaller blog like Rev2. I would write about them and they, they'd kind of get that break um, into, the, in, into the press ecosystem and then TechCrunch would pick them up. And then I think the 2006 to 2008 era, like every couple months, there was something that, that tended to blow my mind. So MySpace, Facebook, uh, Flickr, you know, BuzzFeed way back in the day. And it was just a crazy, crazy era. Super exciting for me as someone who's just like South of New Zealand has nothing else to do. And so, you know, I started monetizing my blog. I sold sponsorships, subscriptions, and then eventually got my CS degree in New Zealand with the intention to then move to the to the States. Do you remember how how did you like run your business back in 20, 2004, 2006? Like was it, could you accept credit cards online? Was it PayPal? Yeah, it, it was entirely through through PayPal. I remember like I would have all my sponsors pay me through PayPal. I think it costs like maybe $1,000 to get one of these like 125 by 125 banners on the site. Um, so that was my bank. I didn't have a real bank account. I didn't have a real credit card. You know, remember I was like 15, 14, 15. And so I'd have all the money come into PayPal. And then I had about five international freelance writers um, who would be on this, like we'd have this, like, you know, the, this uh, kind of content calendar We'd assign stories, um, or I'd assign a lot of these stories like during the day, then I'd come home from school, kind of edit their posts, write some of mine, uh, and then I would pay them out at the end of every month, also via PayPal. And that was the entire, entire business. Wow. Do you remember how big it got? I'm assuming any number that you say is a really big number for a 15-year-old. For me, it was massive. So we, we used to get up to about 100K MA, MAUs a month, um, so, right? So, so about... Roughly 100k readers, and then some months that would go up even higher if we had like a viral post. So like when the iPhone first launched, I did one of the first like summary posts of like the top 25 web apps because ba back then you'd have the app store that you could get, and then that got massive. I mean that was like the first result I actually remember for for so long when you looked up the words like iPhone apps uh, was a Rev2 article. So some months it got up to like you know 300 400k. Oh, nice. I definitely remember doing that back in the day. Best iPhone games. 
so many of those. <laughs> it was such a fun, such a fun time, honestly. And it, it feels like the AI era right now feels a lot closer to that where things were, yeah, things are moving super fast. And, you know, like you, you might one day read about like Google launching Google video to compete with YouTube. And then two months after they're buying YouTube. And then it's game over for all other video startups. Like YouTube is, is a de facto kind of a player number one. Yeah. And then I guess you, you still had to figure out other ways to make money, at least during part of it. Your old boss, Anker at Teachable, we'll talk about Teachable in a second. He told me you were moonlighting as a chef also. You were like 15 years old. What is the story behind that? Yeah. So, so okay, here's the thing, right? So even, even my writers did not know my age because I would only go on chat. Like I wouldn't do Skype calls or anything. Um, and I had the personality of like, let's say like a 25 year old, it'd be pretty reasonable to like read my blog post and say, yeah, this guy's probably just like a young, young guy, like young, adults. yeah, 20 to 25. I think, I don't think anyone ever would have thought I was like 14 or 15, but, and my intention behind that was like, I felt like my words had to be taken seriously. Like if anyone ever found out that I was 14 or 15, like, I just feel like it would have been the end of my blog. I don't know if that was true. Maybe it would have made things even more interesting, but that was my perception. So I had to come up with this persona of like, why isn't like the 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 editor of Rev2 ever online within like these working hours? And so my story <laughs> was, well, I'm a I'm actually a chef by day. And this this like Rev2 thing is really like a side hustle when I when I come home from my day job. And that's the story I kind of fronted to like anyone who ever inquired or to my writers, et cetera. Interesting. Why did you pick a chef? Like, I'm just curious. I, like, so I, I think it might've been because my dad's in the hospitality business. I just knew, I just knew what the chef life was, but yeah, there wasn't any intention behind it. And even when you went to the about page of Rev2, it said I was a chef <laughs> and it had like, we all had little South Park characters. And so my, my, my character had the little chef hat. <laughs> And so that was a real thing that I tried to front up, front up. Okay. With. That's amazing. Well, and then at one point uh, you mentioned you were on a vacation in the U.S. and you just kind of randomly got a job interview and got a job. That's crazy. So how did that happen? Basically, after I graduated with my CS degree, I was just visiting New York. I have a cousin um, who went to NYU back in the day and I was kind of just you know, I literally, just, I, I stayed in his roommate's room, which is not occupied because um, he was away on, uh, uh, on break. And I would just walk around New York City all day. I did that for about a month. So this is towards the end of undergrad. Um, and I'd sold my blog, by the way, by this time. So blogging days were done. I was actually coding. I was building apps, et cetera, for fun. But, you know, I didn't have a day job or anything. And, um, you know, New York City just had me super inspired. So that month I was like, I don't care if I have to work at like Disneyland on like a J1 visa. Like I need to eventually make it here. I need to eventually make it to the US. And so basically what happened was my cousin who then went to NYU, he introduced me to a startup that he was interning for very, very lightly. The way a finance student at NYU would intern for a startup, you can imagine. <laughs> pretty pretty low uh, lift on the finances for the startup. Yeah, like, yeah. We're yeah. spending money. Yeah. And so, the, by the way, this was a day before I was supposed to go back to New Zealand. And then the thought was I would look for employment in New Zealand and move on with my life. And so I walk in for this interview. I mean, it's like a very, very early state startup. They raised maybe a 500K like seed round um, startup called Whisper. So it was like in one of these like 
Clarity FM style ideas of like expert advice. And so I go into the interview, you know, I tell them about Ref2 and kind of my blogging days and everything. You know, my the, I show them the apps that I've built and I just tell them like, you don't have to pay me. Like I will code, I will design, I'll do everything. Like just give me a job. And I didn't expect anything of it, except they kind of took me up on that. And they asked that. So I hadn't told them the part about like me going back to New Zealand throughout the interview. And so they, they kind of offered me the job on the spot. And then I had to reveal to them that I'm actually going back tomorrow. Okay. How did that go? Not as uh, badly as I thought, because they just convinced me to come back to the US in a couple months. So they said, all right, how about you like work remotely for us for a couple months and then come back to the US and you know, we'll sponsor your visa. And that's essentially what, what happened. And so it's, it's quite an accident that I ever made it to the country. But once I did, um, you know, that startup lasted like a couple of years. It was a classic, like classic startup story of like the seed state startup that builds a product, never gains any traction, never manages to raise an A and then has to shut down. And I'd say as an employee, like it's not bad at all because I learned so much because I was trusted to do all of the jobs. They couldn't afford <laughs> to hire any more engineers. So they had me doing like design and engineering and even some of the product management work. And so we built the app. Um, it just never gained any traction. And then it was kind of obvious a couple of years in that, you know, we had to shut this down. So that's what happened. And then that led me to Teachable. So you kind of went through this journey where it's you first started on the internet as a probably primarily a writer, then more of an engineer building things. And then you kind of started transition more to designing. I'm assuming you encompass all of them together. Like it's not like you just forgot about writing or forgot how to code. Like it all... It's kind of like an evolution almost. Yeah, I think the best, you know, engineers are also designers. The best designers are also writers. So I feel like there's a ton of overlap with all of these skill sets, which people tend to undervalue when they get super specialized, especially early on in their career. And that was always my edge. So, you know, when I was interviewing for like a design and front end job at Teachable with Encore, the founder of Teachable, you know, my pitch to him was, you know, I'm not just a designer. I have a CS background. I build apps, I can code, I'm a writer, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm the kind of generalist you would want to join like your, your founding team, which is essentially um, what I ended up doing. And yeah, I, I think people often kind of underrate the, the leverage that being multidisciplinary kind of brings both to yourself and to the company. Yeah. I mean, if you're starting a startup, you are working at an early stage startup, you have to do everything. <laughs> Traditionally, it's like it might be one person's job to just do the accounting at the company. But when you're a startup founder, that is like one of 20 things or 50 things you may have to like, oh, I have to do some QuickBooks stuff really quick before I go to bed tonight so that I can get it out of the way and work on the next thing tomorrow. So I think for, yeah, flexibility, versatility, super important. And it's especially great when your founding team consists of generalists because now it's not just you as a founder who's kind of stretching yourself it's 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 a whole team doing that yeah and you were the like first employee or engineer or designer technically the second engineer but i was the first designer and the first front-end engineer and so the idea was like i would uh come in encore had built the v1 of a teachable back then it was a product called fedora and the idea was, you know, he was a Udemy instructor. And so he realized that, you know, Udemy takes a massive cut. It makes sense for him to sell his online courses on his own website. The actual product at Teachable 
it's kind of similar to Circle, actually. So essentially, it was helping teachers create courses, and it, it took a lower cut than Udemy, which was kind of an existing, more like a little bit more of a legacy incumbent type product. Is that a fair way to think about it? Yeah, m much lower cut, and it was a white label platform. So much like Shopify, you got your own website, you hosted your own landing pages. Um, you know, your checkout on Teachable is white label, so. Um, you know, your brand was front and center as opposed to a discovery platform like like Udemy. Um, and so he built this product that kind of allowed him to do that and then kind of wanted to productize that as a SaaS product, except, you know, his code and his kind of, I mean, he built it super fast, but yeah, his code was pretty awful. There's a, you know, maybe a couple PHP files. You could go to like, I think stats.php on any teachable school back in the day and just look at all the metrics. Um, so <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, I hate to embarrass on core like this, but I'm pretty sure he was using FTP to deploy uh, changes to the website. <laughs> and so we didn't have any versioning. So instead of like a, like a cPanel or something you're saying, or? Or like GitHub, right? Or, or like a Git system. So like the way you would make changes to the, the PHP site is you would drag a file, a PHP file on one of those uh, FTP servers. And so we were hired to essentially rewrite the product, which by the way, was actually gaining traction. So I think he built something meaningful, but we were hired as the early team to kind of rewrite that in Ruby on Rails, um, you know, rebuild the entire thing, kind of clone what he'd done uh, for the most part. And then I think MRR was barely, I would say, you know, two to 3K back in the day. So it was very early days. Um, and then, yeah, we did that. We relaunched, rebranded to Teachable. My, my job changed from like a, an IC designer engineer to a product. So uh, product management, a couple of years into that. Um, and then a year after kind of he, after a couple other PMs also didn't work out, he was like, how about you lead product? You're the head of product, go build a team of PMs, go learn whatever you need to learn. And, and for me, that perfectly aligned with my vision, by the way, because the whole reason I immigrated to the US, I feel like in the first place was to be an entrepreneur, to start a company, to kind of fulfill that dream. And so my thought was, what's better than like a zero to one startup experience where I get to do product and flex all of my skill sets and learn from someone um, who's a terrific entrepreneur, and then I can maybe go on to do my own thing. Yeah. I also want to make sure we give Ankur the, the shout out. He has said before he's publicly admitted that what the code was like not very good. Like I, I've like been on a panel with him, and he said my code is not good. The people I hired did a way better job. So I think he is he he does acknowledge that. And and by the way, so I wrote the version one for Circle, and all of that code has been rewritten as well. So I can't say much better about myself. <laughs> wow. So teachable. The initial teachable code, the initial circle code, even that is getting all replaced. Like all the different levels of, yeah. It's been replaced, thankfully. Been, been, been yeah. replaced, okay. I guess we could shift gears to circle in a second, but I'm curious, maybe we touch on them, but anything else big that you've learned from Teachable or the founders of Teachable? Any lessons or takeaways? Yeah, so I, I feel like it's where I got all of my learnings and specifically from the frame of like what not to do. Um, so I think... Teachable, when it came to product market fit, was amazing. Like the product actually was the right product at the right time, built with the right feature set. So we never had problems kind of growing. So, you know, the five years that I was there, it grew from zero to, I think, 25 million in ARR and is now much, much bigger. But internally, we were all sort of first time VPs or, you know, heads of departments that were all trying to figure it out. 
along with Encore being a first-time CEO. So I feel like we made collectively probably every mistake in the book that can be made by like a first-time manager, a first-time exec. Um, and so like an example of a mistake would be, you know, if, if I'm now the head of product, my first PM hire was fairly junior. And so it took me a while to realize that if you're ever the, like the department lead or even like a CEO, it's your job to hire people who are better than you, not people who are junior, <laughs> who you can train up and kind of, you know, boss around. And so that was just a very basic lesson that I had to learn along with kind of countless such lessons throughout that journey. So then were, were you kind of junior though, I guess, when you started at Teachable or is the thinking then you were really good at certain things and you were kind of upgrading the skill set of like the team at the time? Yeah. So I, I looked at myself as a founder and I kind of still do. And I feel like a different rules apply to founders. Um, it's just the way it is where I think founders are trusted with the massive responsibility, but they have to be great at learning and leveling up. Um, picking up new skill sets and having a great vision of what it is that needs to be done, right? And so that part, I think, like I was pretty good at. Um, what I wasn't good at is realizing that in order to do that in any role where you're leading a team of people, you need kind of, you need specialists. So you need like people who actually are not from that mindset of a founder, but are really great at what they do um, and you need them to, at times, tell you what to do as well. So it's, there's almost like a quid pro quo. Um, and so I was on that trajectory of learning as fast as I could. Um, you know, I was meeting with maybe, you know, five heads of products a month in New York City for coffee, for dinner. I was reading all of the books. So one track at Teachable I had was like leveling up as a, you know, as an IC, then a you know, PM, then a uh, VP. The other track I had at Teachable was um, I was getting incredibly inspired by that sort of creator ecosystem that I was seeing develop ever, ever, ever since the early days, actually. So, you know, at Teachable, we would do these like meetups every Friday where we would invite customers to show up to our offices. And a lot of them would bring their laptops. And at times I was just kind of chit-chatting with them about their businesses. At times I was helping them like, like fix issues or I was like filing bug reports. But I, I really fell in love with the people that we were building the product for. So essentially the, the the creators. And it was basically like this one main feature of selling a course of some kind. Yeah. And and so as I would talk to them, I would realize that, you know, an online course or like a school, as we called it, that may or may not be like the, the key part of someone's business. Like there were a lot of creators who had that almost as like for, for side hustle or side income. And for some, it was like the main thing and they were crushing it. And that got me fascinated into like the idea that, you know, you build an audience on the internet and then what is step two? Step two is you have to engage that audience um, and you have to monetize, um, not just to like, you know, make money and be rich or whatever, but to build a business that's sustainable. Because if you don't do that, the reality is you're going to stop being a creator in a year or two years, right? And so... Teachable was kind of solving for that problem. And about five years in, when I realized that, you know, courses were not the sort of right kind of frame to look at monetization from, where it was actually much bigger than that. It was about the engagement uh, part of the audience. And courses are one form of the engagement and monetization. They're not the end-all be-all. Um, and sort of that started the, the trajectory that eventually led me to, to Circle. So then what was kind of that journey from going 
Teachable VP of product to day one of Circle? Yeah. So basically five years in, I kind of started having these thoughts about, you know, leaving the company, starting my own. The one thing that always prevented me from making that leap sort of year four, year five is that, you know, I was actually a, uh, you know, I was a husband, I was a father, I had a, a four-year-old daughter at the time and we didn't have any savings at all. And we were living in New York City in like a, a, a one bedroom back in the day. And I almost kind of took it for granted that my teachable equity means something and it will eventually make me the money to do my, make me uh, money to do my own thing. So you did think it would, or you did not think? I did think it would, but it hit me five years in that like, I kind of needed that cash oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> to, to make that leap because we were, I think like seven credit cards down, probably about $30,000 in debt. So like just credit cards on credit cards. So we do like vacations on credit cards. And the way I justified it, by the way, is like, I always offset it with the theoretical value of my teachable equity. And so I was always in the up in my, in my head until five years in, I realized that until I see that cash or see some cash, I can't just leave a job to start a company and I don't want to get another job. So essentially what ended up happening is um, one of my old friends from way back in the internet days is this guy called uh, Sahil Lavingia. He's the, the founder of Gumroad and, you know, kind of big Twitter personality. Um, and so we'd known each other since we were teenagers too. So, you know, we're about the same age. So we met was 15 or 16. He actually also is one of those people who didn't know my age back in the day. Um, <laughs> so you were both like 12 talking to each yeah, other. Yeah, like, we met hey. up in New York City and he, yeah, he, he later discovered that I was actually the same age. <laughs> nice. Um, That's awesome. And so I kind of pinged him for a chat just on like life and career advice. You know, he'd had that journey at Gumroad where I think they downsized and he was living in Utah and other things. Um, and he gave me the, the suggestion to freelance for Gumroad sort of three days a week doing engineering and code work. And it turns out that's the model with which Gumroad operates is they don't have any full-timers. They just have folks who are, you know, um, putting in like 20, 25 hours a week. And then I could spend the rest of my time uh, working on my own ideas. And that opened up the, the opportunity to, you know, not take a massive risk when it came to like my family, my daughter, to take that leap with a bit of a cushion, even before like Teachable exited, which it, you know, it did about a year later. Um, and then that gave me the runway to spend at least two days a week working on my own ideas. So this is when I started kind of grouping with my founding team. So I'd always had like these two people who I knew I'd reach out to, to start a company. So one of them was Andrew Gutormson, who was uh, Teachable's VP of Growth and Marketing. So we were sort of dear friends along with uh, Ankur and I um, at Teachable. And so he has the entirely opposite skill set to the, the one that I have, which is he's a marketing sales growth kind of expert and really was responsible for, for Teachable's growth and success to a large part in that in that area. So, you know, we, we'd always had this joke that we would try and recruit the other person whenever <laughs> one of us left. Whoever um, had the good idea first. Yeah. So he'd be like, I'm going to recruit you one day. And I'll be like, I'll recruit you one day. Um, and so, you know, we started chatting and my other co-founder, uh, whose name is Rudy, um, I'd known him from, um, actually before Teachable, you know, he's also a designer engineer. We built products together. He then worked for Teachable for a little bit and he'd left his stint at Teachable to then became, become a sort of fractional CTO to about 30 course creators. So he was on the other side of what I was doing at Teachable with direct access to a lot of these course creators um, where they trusted him to like, you know, help 
help them sort of plan out their, their stack. He knew about a lot of their pain points. He knew, knew about all of Teachable's pain points. And so the, when the three of us started chatting, we realized that, you know, this would be a pretty awesome sort of founding team where you have someone who's on the ground, who knows the customers through and through. You have Andy and I who built a product like this before, um, who know a lot about SaaS. You, you know, you have me on the design and engineering capacity, and then you have Andy on the, the marketing and sales, the go-to-market capacity. Um, and so, you know, we started talking about ideas. So we'd jam on ideas two days a week. Um, we went through the entire laundry list of all of the creator economy startups that were funded and eventually shut down as potentially uh, potential ideas to work on. What year was this? So this is probably sort of early 2019, early to mid 2019. So we hadn't quite hit the, maybe had just started to pick up just like the broader excitement about creator economy in the investment community. Yeah, it was right before, you know, COVID, but it was picking up. So, you know, I think the the 1,000 true fans blog post had maybe gone viral at this time. Um, and for, for me, like I was committed at this point to build a company for creators. Um, I knew I, I want to do that. I didn't want to build like a consumer product that we'd later have to scale to massive degrees and monetize via ads. And I didn't want to build like enterprise B2B. Um, because actually, I love the idea of like serving entrepreneurs, serving creators, helping them grow and build successful businesses. There's like all of the touchy-feely aspects that one can imagine when you talk to these people. And then there's also the sort of monetary aspect of, you know, they're paying you for the product. Like you can generate revenue on day one. You don't have to rely on a ton of VC rounds to, to eventually monetize. So we were essentially spending, you know, two days a week sort of jamming on a bunch of ideas. So we went through like, you know, should we do newsletter? Should we do podcast? Should we do a fintech startup for creators? Um, community was always sort of one framing of um, the ideas that we ran through. And eventually what happened is we started to get excited about community from the framing of if it's about engaging the audience, once you build up the audience, communities, both in the concrete sense of like a Slack, Discord, Circle community, but also in the abstract sense of like the engaged audience is really the thing that helps you uh, take that next step uh, before you monetize the community, right? So that framing, both in the abstract and the concrete sense was getting us super excited. And it, it became super concrete when, you know, we, we just, uh, over a span of a week, we jammed on Figma, we built a prototype, we started showing it to the, the people that we'd been talking to. So one of them was Tiago Forte, you know, who's written a book called Building Second Brain. Yeah. And he was actually an ex-teachable um, uh, customer as well. Um, and so he was actually struggling a lot with his community stack and the way his course was running. So when I showed him that initial product, Tiago was like, I'm in, how do I sign up? Uh, and I had to tell him that, well, we, we still have to build it, but you saying that will, will now make us, <laughs> we've got a customer. Yeah. And so Rudy, who is now a consultant, uh, you know, 30 of these folks had that same experience with about five, five of his clients where they were like, this is awesome. Sign me up. I really need to figure out community or I need to, you know, fix my community stack. I love that circles taking the approach of, I mean, it's white labeled, um, it's extremely flexible. And remember, Circle at this time was like in Figma, um, but we were we were getting that validation pretty early on. We we're getting super excited about it, so we booked out this like Airbnb in like Venice Beach for a week. I um, mean, you know, both of us have families and kind of hold ourselves up, 
built the prototype sort of coding day in, day out, um, and onboarded a couple customers, showed it to Encore, who was then basically very excited to invest. He kind of knew where we were going, that this was like, yeah, this is the next thing. And like, all of it made sense and offered to invest $250,000 as our first check, um, as did one of other, one of Teachable's other co-founders, um, whose name is Conrad Wadowski. And so we had barely had a product, but we had like a 350 sort of pre-pre-seed round. And both of these guys asked the team to go full-time. So they're like, if you're going to work on this, you got to do this full-time, you know, stop the, the consulting, stop working on other ideas. You have to take this seriously. This is awesome. And I think I remember Anker saying he, he used like 90% of like all the cash that he had. Like it was an insane like percentage of his like total net worth or something that wasn't in Teachable. He just basically gave it all to you. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know this back in the day actually. So he never told us that part. He, okay. he later told You're just like he's loaded. I, I, I might have had I might have tried to talk him out of it if I if I'd known that. Because yeah, we barely had a product. But yeah, there's something in him that I guess saw the potential and wanted to invest in his his own early team. And yeah, that, that was super sort of validating, right? So when you have like two of your ex-bosses, Conrad and Accor, willing to shell out real cash pre-exit. Um, Teachable had not exited back then. And we had these customers like a Tiago, like a David Perel, and about three or four other customers who were kind of getting onboarded, who were enjoying the experience of you know setting up their community. Um, and we just said, I think this is the right frame for what we want to work on. You know, It's all about engagement. Courses are going to be a form of engagement. They're important, but it's not the end-all be-all. Community is a larger thing. Community is an abstract thing. So community is all about, you know, you can build community through events. You can build community through running an online course. You can build community through discussions the way you would in a Facebook group or Discord. And we want to be that sort of end-all be-all platform eventually. And that's a very exciting vision that we can work towards for, you know, say 15 to 20 years. Okay. I, there's probably like two or three different things I want to hit on based on what you just said. Community, what what is that? What does it even mean? Because we've touched on a couple of times. Engagement, what does that mean exactly? Uh, and I'm also just curious, like the rest of the fundraising around, just how that all came together. I don't know how interconnected all these things are, but if we could touch on them. So just to double click on what our conception of community has become over time, actually, it wasn't always this way, but I feel like it's really crystallized. Um, I think if you were to take a very concrete example of maybe even yourself or someone who's in your position. So, you know, a lot of these creators start out building an audience and the way they do that is not by building a community first. They do that by, you know, going viral on TikTok or Twitter or YouTube, right? Posting a bunch of shorts, having a, a daily cadence of posting short form videos, right? So, you know, it's, it's really the algorithm that gets them that attention on these various platforms initially, right? Where they they maybe identify with the niche, they become someone who's very interesting to follow. And over time, what develops is this very lightweight fan following, right? The, the 1,000 true fans thing starts to actually emerge. And it may, you know, while this is happening, you may still just have like one Twitter account or one TikTok account. So it's not about like where it's happening. It's about the fact that it is happening and people know who Turner Novak is. Uh, and the kind of content you produce, right? And I think this is the point where the the sort of more abstract definition of community 
really starts to get developed, which is you now have an engaged audience who, who know about you, who watch your stuff. Um, and if you wanted to take that to the next step, there are probably things that you could do to engage further with them, right? And this is where I think a lot of people get tripped up. So, you know, yeah, you can run a Discord or Slack-like community on Circle. I mean, a lot of people do that. You can run a Facebook group-like community on Circle. A lot of people do that. But I think when you look at community more from the abstract lens, I think the potential of like being very creative with what your version of community is to you can set you apart and can help you truly monetize to the extent that just making money on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram cannot. So once you identify that opportunity, I, I think it's about figuring out, okay, is it, you know, is it a paid newsletter? Is it a membership? Um, is it an online course? Is it an, a virtual event series? Is it an IRL event series? So all of these options open up. And when we started Circle, we sort of we sort of had this diagram of a wheel that consisted of like, you have discussions, you have events, you have live streams, you have payments, you know, you have chat. And the idea was, can we build that one true platform that that supports any version of a community that someone wants to build and is flexible enough to even even evolve with them over time. So, you know, maybe your community starts off with like one chat space for your fans to interact with each other, non-moderated, it's just super fun. And then eventually that develops to, you know, a cohort-based online course that's pretty intense where you have weekly live workshops and you have um, a whole bunch of resources that you're producing and sharing with with your folks. And by the way, you're charging like, a thousand bucks for entry to that cohort, right? And so can we build that one ultimate platform that's got the building blocks and the flexibility to scale up? So that's kind of how the idea of Circle started to evolve over the course of the first couple of years. So trying to give people concrete examples of, of some of this stuff, maybe a good way to answer that question is, do you have any favorite or the most interesting kind of businesses or creators that you've seen using circle like any can you just kind of talk us through what what their circle looks like like you you open their community what what do you get yeah so maybe i can give a couple examples you know i've talked about tiago so tiago started to build up a fan following tiago forte for anyone who wants to look him up a lot of folks might already know him you know started to build up a following around the knowledge management and personal productivity space online he had an amazing newsletter he had a twitter following um, and eventually Tiago realized that, you know, it's very hard to monetize like a Twitter account, um, and even a newsletter to the extent that he wanted. And really the opportunity was to build, um, this paradigm, the system he calls, you know, building a second brain. It's got something he calls the, the para method, um, of how someone goes about sort of managing all of their knowledge, all of their notes. What is the para method? I've never heard of that before. I don't actually recall right now what it stands for, but in the abstract sense, it's about managing all of the ideas and all of the resources that you come across. Um, and it turns out that's super valuable to folks um, right now because the internet tends to overwhelm, right? So people will pay to have a more organized mind and a more organized life um, and to learn from a Tiago uh, is kind of what he realized. I just Googled it. So we get a definite explanation here. PARA stands for Projects, Areas, Resources, and Archives. So it's 
projects or things you're actively working on, areas are just roles and responsibilities that you're kind of managing over time. Resources are topics that you're interested in that could be in, you know relevant or useful in the future. And then archives. So it's completed or inactive items from the other three categories. Seems pretty straightforward. Yeah. And just when you hear that framework, you're like, that makes sense. Am, am I really like, am I putting that to work with, with all of my, with, with my, my life, my notes, my business, right? Um, and, and so, you know, that's an example of a community that started to form around Tiago's ideas, starting with his newsletter, then through his online course. And now he has a book um, that's evolved. Uh, another great example of a circle creator is Ali Abdal. Um, who sort of, you know, I think he was a doctor in a past life, started making YouTube videos. I think a lot of his videos were around productivity, sort of as well, kind of similar to the space that Tiago's in. Um, And he actually went in a tangential direction, which is Ali started what he calls a part-time YouTuber academy. So his course and community is about helping others become YouTubers and then monetize their, their YouTube channel. Um, and that, you know, runs on circle as well. And so you see that there's two ways you can go, go down as a creator. One is like the direct monetization of, you know, your ideas, your thought and sort of direct education of that knowledge. The other is the sort of second order the like the periphery of what you do and kind of operationalizing that and then educating people about that. So, you know, on the one hand, it's like I'm building circle and that's a, product and the creator economy. On the other hand, like I'm learning how to build companies and there's value to that knowledge as well. Um, and so all, all of these, I think, add up to, you know, more monetization opportunities, um, deeper monetization opportunities. And eventually it's about, I think for a lot of creators, it has to be about kind of owning your audience and owning your distribution, right? Because you don't want to rely on the algorithms. Yeah, because YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, all of these platforms are, are great when you're starting out. It's those algorithms that get you that attention. It is not in their best interest to keep you sort of, you know, like front and center in all of these news feeds in, in front of people's eyeballs, right? Because there's just way more creators for them to highlight and emphasize. And and if you're just rely, relying on monetizing through, through those platforms, I think you're leaving a lot on table and it's a risky proposition, right? Because what happens when you stop monetizing? You have nothing else to go, go to go after, as opposed to, you know, you have the community, you have a business, um, you have an income stream that you can rely upon beyond just the initial audience. Yeah, I don't think it's, it's, it's kind of hard to explain how challenging burnout is to manage as a creator, because to your point, like, whether or not YouTube promotes you or Instagram promotes you, like you have to just keep creating regardless of, of if they do. And hopefully you're doing it because you enjoy it. But like there are times where it's hard to just stay consistent with it. And especially if you're not seeing the results that you want to get, like it's it can be pretty discouraging or you, you start to burn out almost where it's like, how do I just stick with this? And sometimes it's the same thing over and over again, like that can churn wheels or like your business isn't growing or shrinking because of things outside of your control. Have you seen any ways for managing that like, as a creator specifically? Like maybe you guys are helping with that. Yeah. I, I think communities, like honestly, the answer to that, because if you're, if you just have this like broadcast medium and 
you're on this like hamster wheel of creating content for your audience. To your point, eventually that gets tiring. And eventually, like, I don't know, you might not want to do that for a few weeks, <laughs> right? Like you might just want some fresher, newer ideas. Um, and I think when a creator forms that direct connection with their audience, that sort of deeper engagement through community where, you know, maybe you're running an event series where you get to really interact and get to know your audience. Um, or, you know, you have some way to connect more deeply. I think one, the ideas get better and fresher because now you're in direct dialogue. You're not just kind of, you know, you're not building content and sort of hypotheticals. You're actually talking to the people who are, you know, who, who love your stuff. Um, and so again, community in the abstract sense helps extend that shelf life. And then in the monetary sense also gives you that runway, right? So to my point about what happens when, you know, your, your viewer count start dwindling, when you are no longer as, um, you know, as sort of popular, famous as you once were, um, I think you have your community to rely on and you have your business to rely on if you've set it up in the right way. Yeah, I think not saying that he's peaked or that it's declining, but one creator that probably a lot of people listening might be familiar with that I think has done a really good job is Lenny Richitsky. Do you follow Lenny at all? Lenny's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He's, we, we both kind of start, he started his newsletter a little bit before I did, but we've kind of always just traded notes, learned from each other. I think he's probably like one of the best executed uh, creator playbook kind of in our, in our space. He did a really good job where building the community, but he uses the community to create more content. Like if you go through and look at the stuff that Lenny puts out, a lot of it is just from the community. And it's almost like taking this concept of UGC, like user generated content, that that's essentially the, the business of a Facebook, a TikTok, all these social media platforms. It's basically, you know, you're, you're getting, he, he has like, uh, he shares wisdom from the community, like just feedback, thoughts, people trading notes, um, how they dealt with certain problems. And like, that's an email that he sends out every week. And I mean, he does a little bit to kind of grease that wheel, but there's like, I don't know, there'll be like 50 people that contribute to that post in the Slack group that he has. And isn't that so much more fun than like, try, like again, being on that hamster wheel where you're thinking about the content that people might like, right? So, so again, going, going by the abstract notion of community is kind of what I mean. And again, I think like the, the circle or the discord, like discussion area is like one sort of expression of that. It doesn't have to be the only expression. And if I was to kind of really boil it down, it's about you build an audience, you build a community, you build a business, right? So kind of three steps. Community is the thing that extends your shelf life. Community is also the thing that feeds back into the audience, right? Because community helps you grow that audience, one, directly through word of mouth, because now you have, you know, super fans. You don't just have like you know, viewers. And, and the other thing is it feeds back to the type of content you might want to create to grow your audience as well, because you're learning from that direct engagement, direct interactions. You're not sort of on, on an ivory tower trying to imagine what people would, would like to consume. Yeah. And even on that note, I mean, the way we connected Dave Ambrose, who introduced us, he is a fan of the podcast. And when we met up in New York, he's like, dude, you got to have Sid on. Like, he'd be a great, great guest. Dave is awesome, by the way. Dave was one of Circle's earliest investors. Um, again, one of those people who backed us before we had a fully functioning product. Okay. So, well, yeah. So going back to that fundraise, I think you raised like a one and a half million dollar pre-seed. You had the first 350 from Teachable Founders. How'd you get the rest? 
Yeah. So what happened was, and all of this happened within a span of a month. So this is December, 2019, which is, you know, we had the, the initial product, we had the 350. Um, and I was not planning to raise any more than 500 because my thinking was it would just be the three founders like toiling away at this idea for a couple of years. And we don't need that much money. That was my initial thinking. And, you know, after talking on core and after meeting a guy named Brian Tobel in New York City, you know, Brian's a, a serial entrepreneur. So I'm actually, Tiago is the one who introduced us. So I meet Brian and Brian tells me, he's like, hey, you might want to raise a little more, like go for one, go for one and a half million, you know? Yeah. 500 is pretty tight. Yeah. And it's... I was like, no, I'm cool with the 500. Like, I don't want to dilute any more than that right now. You know, we're going to take our time, et cetera. And he's like, no, I think you should, you should go for it. You've got, you've got everything going after you. You know, you've got the 350, you've got a product, you've got customers who want to use it. Um, I'm going to send you a bunch of intros to um, some of New York's best seed investors. So Dave was actually one of them. Uh, Nick Charles from Notation Capital, who led our pre-seed and our seed, was one of them. David Tish from Box Group was one of them. And he was like, you're going to talk to these people and you're going to close it in a in a week or two. And I like I was like, okay, sure. Uh, <laughs> you're <laughs> like, whatever. whatever. Someone said that, you're like, okay, whatever. Like, the, you know, I'm sure I'm being like, you know, whatever. Um, and so, you know, we were also like three or four, like old fashions down at this point, maybe. So it was like, I, I didn't make too much of it, if I'm being honest. A couple, a couple of days later, the intros drop into my inbox. There's about like 10 intros. Um, and all I do is like, I get on these calls and I just start telling them about the idea. I, I don't have a plan to like raise a round or anything like that. And I just start guessing, getting yeses for, you know, a 50, a 100, a 150. Um, and then I talked to Nick Trill from Notation and he wants to, you know, buy out the, the rest of the round. He wants his sort of 10% ownership. Uh, and so within a couple of weeks of Encore backing us, you know, we had the pre-seed uh, closed. Um, so that's 1.5 million, oh, sorry, $1.7 million round at about a 10 mil post cap. Uh, and really, yeah, that, that set us up to actually then build a product in the right way and actually uh, to build a company. Anything else you think a founder should consider when doing that very first pre-seed round? When I look back at it, it was like fairly accidental. Like I, no one had told me how to do this. I'm not even on core. Oh, yeah. It was you like, yeah. you like, here's it, what you do. Yeah. It's interesting where like, yeah, no one sat me down to say, here's how you raise a pre-seed or whatever, whatever. It's just, I, I just started talking to a bunch of people and I started realizing, okay, like these are my options and I could, you know, close a bunch of saves and I, I have that money. But I think. In hindsight, what I had going after me is, one, I had the track record of Teachable. Two, I had the founders shelling out their personal cash as the first couple checks. So that, that's a strong signal, right? Three, I built the product. It wasn't a great product. It was a very basic MVP, but the product existed. Four, we had our first five customers. They weren't paying yet, but they were getting onboarded to Circle and, you know, Tiago was going to run the next cohort and so on, right? So I had all of this going for me. So I can now imagine in hindsight why like, yeah, we'd make for safe sort of pre-seed bet. But honestly, it blew my mind away back then that people were willing to back us on not that much because I, I really thought like we need to build a product, you know, start to show a bunch of traction, you know, the classic 20% growth, you know, month over month. Um, and only then would we close a big round. But yeah, it happened much sooner. And I'm so glad it did because that allowed us to build a, the team fairly early on. And so... We, we ended up essentially building the product and launching in, I think it was September of uh, 2020. Uh, it's when we launched publicly. 
And, and I, it's not just like wrapping up the fundraising discussion. I mean, it sounds like it happened because you weren't necessarily thinking about this as like a, I need to fundraise and like give a pitch. You were really thinking about it as I'm building a business. I'm building a product. I'm solving problems as an investor. If I'm thinking about like some of those things you checked off the box, those are like some of the risks. It's like, will, is this actually a problem? Is it, can you make money doing this? Can they actually build it? Could you have, can you hire a team? And you'd kind of checked all those boxes. So making a real business, you just tell investors like, Hey, this is the business that I'm trying to build. And like, Oh, we want in like you're, you weren't trying to sell it to them. They were like selling you on like why you should, why you should take their money. Yeah. I had one notion doc, by the way. And that notion doc was primarily for me and the founding team to align on, to know like what we're building and why this is a big opportunity, right? It was really for us. And, you know, when people ask for like, you have a deck or whatever, I would just share that notion doc and they'd kind of get the gist of it. Um, and that had everything from like, you know, our, our landscape or pricing, you know, the, the big opportunity, what makes this like a hundred X thing. But that was really for us more than it was for, for like an external audience. It wasn't very polished. Yeah. I mean, those are some of my favorite fundraising decks where, I mean, you can just tell like the goal is not raise money. <laughs> the goal is we are building a company. Like this is going to be a, a big business. Like this is the, this is almost like the directive or like the agenda or like this is the framework that we're going to be using. Um, so I can totally see how that all works. Well, one thing about my background is I took that money so seriously, which I don't know if every founder does that, where to me that $1.7 million was like maybe the last money I'll ever raise. I have a moral commitment to 100x this, this cash to the investors and I will get that done. And also, you know, I have a wife and a four-year-old daughter. So like, I need to, I need to do this as a, like, I don't, I do not want to go back to like being a head of product or a PM. Like this is my one shot finally in America, the right idea, the right team, et cetera. And so I think that conviction almost gave me this like sense of like, I have like, I, I do have things to lose, but also the upside is so great. And like everything kind of, has led me to this point of to, towards this opportunity that I was super optimistic about where, where this could go. Yeah, it was kind of, you, you weren't just like, sounds fun, a startup thing. It was basically like your life's mission. All It all kind of coincided, like this was the thing that you were going to do. Very serious, you had a plan and you were gonna make it work no matter what. Like no matter what kind of roadblocks got in your way, like you were going to solve all the problems and stick with it. So you said you launched, so you basically you did this round like very end, very beginning of 19 and 20. And then did COVID hitting change? Like, did, was that a big, big thing in kind of the history of Circle or? Yeah. So obviously COVID was not good for the world, but it was actually great for Circle and great for the creator economy um, and the community space. Because a lot of these IRL communities started to go sort of virtual. And, you know, we were a virtual community platform as well. So, yeah, I do, I do think that helped. Maybe not to the extent that it helped some other startups, but it was like the right time. Like, it, it was all sort of, you know, it was in the zeitgeist, a lot of this stuff. And so I feel like, you know, sheer dumb luck. Um, I think we were working on, like, the right idea, the right time. So I was going to say, you were kind of building as the, the hype and the interest maybe started to all also build up. Yeah, yeah. And so so what we did was, uh, the first thing we did is we launched a wait list in January when I announced that, you know, we're working on Circle and here's kind of the 
the mission and the vision. Um, and that's all we had on like the marketing site. And that tweet went semi-viral where within a couple of weeks of that, we had a wait list of about, I'd say 500 or so folks. And within actually a couple of months, there was a thousand, thousand people. So product like barely exists. I mean, it, it's there, but it's like, you know, V0.1, um, but we have the wait list. And so what we realized is, okay, the initial challenge for us is like, we need to make like Tiago and like the four other customers, like super happy. How do we do that? Like all of those customers have my phone number. I'm talking to them multiple times a week. You know, I'm digesting all of their feedback, all of their suggestions. I'm improving the product. So that was like the first three to four months where it was literally me doing that, doing the design, doing the code with my two co-founders. Um, and then sort of beyond that, started to build out the team. So, you know, it'd be nice to not have to answer every support ticket myself. Should I bring on someone for, who can do customer support? So maybe she does half the tickets. And that was Keisha, our first um, support hire, who now runs a team of say, about 15 or so folks. Oh, and so that was the first hire? Yeah. First um, sort of full-time hire. We also had some contract engineers starting to work with us who then um, later on went full-time. And then... I think, you know, the product just got, you know, kind of better, more mature, more polished over the course of that. Uh, and also what happened is we started to work through the wait list. So, um, you know, one of my co-founders, Andy, he's the uh, sort of go-to-market um, guru. The deal that I had with him is he couldn't grow any aspect of Circle until we personally onboarded the first thousand customers. So like, if he has a challenge to like growth hack this to a million AR, we could do that in a couple months, regardless of the quality of the product. He, he's just such an amazing marketer. You know, he'd set up a bunch of partnerships. You know, we'd run a virtual summit. We can do that. Uh, but my intention was to first and foremost sort of build that early product that has, that's a decent product, has real super fans using it and talking about it. And so that first year was essentially me, Andy, and Rudy sort of doing you know, five to 10 demos a day. Uh, and we were sort of onboarding all of the, the initial customers. So that's essentially how we got to the first, I'd say, like 1,000 customers in the first year. This was calendar year 2020. Yeah. And by the way, that had a, an amazing feedback loop of like, because I was personally doing the demos and then Andy was doing the demos and like, there's a lot of feedback that was exchanged directly or indirectly about the product that we just had to solve or fix. And the other, the other thing that I sort of said as a constraint is, you know, I didn't trust that anyone could onboard themselves to circle at that time. But it's like, you had to have the call with me or my co-founders for us to explain our vision of community, show the product. And only then did I expect someone to even be able to figure it out because we didn't have an onboarding experience, right? And so you know, that took a while to build. And eventually in September, we started to feel good about sort of opening up the, the floodgates a little bit to the, the remaining wait list and sort of launching the on product hunt and doing the, the standard thing. And that's about when we closed our seed round, which is a, a $4 million round on a 40 mil post uh, money valuation. Yeah, I do remember that. I think, well, con context, and we, we talked about this when we caught up before, but context for the audience, I'd invested in a kind of like adjacent company, not quite the same, but I just never met you at the seed because I was like, that's eh, too familiar. I usually try to stay away from those kind of things. So I'm interested in how that went. So you, you launched, I know you hit about a million in kind of 
this subscription recurring revenue within, I think, three months of the launch. And then you raise the seed round. What was kind of the dynamics of the seed round? How did you put that together? Over the course of the year, we had a lot of interest coming in. Also, by the way, because I was heads down and I was not talking to anyone. I feel like that actually helps build up momentum. It's very counterintuitive, but I think founders need to realize like it's a bit like the dating game. Like, you know, the the person who's attractive is not the one like going around sort of asking people to date them. They're just kind of doing their own thing, right? So it's a bit like that where I was super heads down, you know, maybe once in a while I'd take a call. Um, and sort of coming into August, you know, we know we knew we were about to launch this, kind of closing in on the four to five hundred k ARR, um, and really started to think about okay, what does our seed look like? Um, and then we were super fortunate because both Nick Charles from Notation Capital and Encore offered to also lead the seed round. So you know they offered a let's say million dollars each. Encore had a fund. Right, yeah. that he had raised. Yep. Yeah, by by this time he had a fund. Yeah, and so by Teachable this time, exited, right? Teachable had exited. Yep. Yeah, he like you know we were I think like yeah so so we were one of the first investments from his new fund. Slightly uh, less percentage of his net worth. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He was kind of in, in the green by then, right? Um, and so these guys were like, hey, instead of talking to these institutional funds, how about you just do like a, like a three to four million dollar seed? We can back about half of it, and the other half you could just fill up with kind of useful angel investors, so founders, creators, um, et cetera. And so we compared a bunch of these options of like, you know, getting an institution involved early on to uh, front up the whole thing versus this. I like this approach a lot because I realized, you know, Encore and Nick backed us when we had nothing and had been super, super amazing to us. So it kind of felt right and felt fair to have them re-up and it felt like, you know, validating that they want, they want to do that. And also felt like a great opportunity to fill up the rest of the round with folks who could be helpful uh, with sort of, you know, 20 to 100K checks. And we essentially ended up with about 30 or so uh, people in the cap table that way that invest in our seed. What was the trade-off in terms of, you, you talked about you looked at, you know, smaller checks, one big institutional check. Were there any kind of pros and cons you found with the larger checks and specifically that made you decide to go the angel route? With Encore and Nick, we had like the big, bigger checks, like the the one, you know, one mil each. Um, and I realized instead of having like $4 million checks, it's kind of nice to have like $2 million checks and then like 30 other like smaller checks. Um, you know, it's just more fun that way. You know, it's, 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 it's fun for, for us to get to interact with people like, you know, Todd and Rahul and Scott Belsky and Josh Buckley and, and a bunch of these folks who, who were, you know, entrepreneurs themselves, you know, Darmesh Shah from HubSpot. And it was very validating to um, even get to know them, honestly, because I wasn't super plugged in back then into the uh, ecosystem. And so it was almost an easy call because when I compared it to the, the other option, I was like, there's just more upside here. And I, yeah, I honestly didn't see much upside in the other options. So for people to get context, if you wanted to raise money from a traditional venture fund, they have certain, they need to own a certain percentage of the company basically to make the math on their fund work. Um, topic for another day, but essentially they probably would have had to do a $4 million check. Yeah. Yeah. They would have had to have like half or if not most of that round. And I spoke to some people about that. So we kind of, we did chop it around. I think we had a couple term sheets, but um, I guess, yeah, I didn't see the value add justifying that versus the benefits we would get from just the other route. 
Yeah. And I, I, it probably, you were set up in that position because your existing investors who got their fund targets met, like notation owned 10%, their follow on round was just kind of like a, I'm sure it, it mattered, but they were kind of like, do we need to own another 2%, 5%? Like it's kind of a wash. Actually, I think what happened is in the pre-seed notation owned about 7%. And I told Nick that, okay, maybe eventually we'd get you up to the 10. So that, that was a part of that as well. Of like, I kind of did feel like I owed it to him. Uh, and to Encore for for that additional sort of investment. You launched, and I think we've kind of touched on really briefly, you you guys grew pretty quickly right after that, right? Yeah, yeah. So number one, we had the wait list. Number two, a lot of the early customers were extremely generous. So like Tiago, David Perel, Ben Tossel from Maker, MakerPad, and Laura LeConf, um, a lot of these folks had thriving communities on Circle were talking about us for no benefit of their own. And that truly helped like in the, the early days because that kicked off, um, you know, the, the momentum. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we went viral or anything, but it was just a constant sort of building of the top funnel through your customers, you know, who've set up their communities and are sort of fairly successful and liking the product. And I think the reason, by the way, a big reason why they loved us back in the day, it wasn't really the product um, or the features. It was more velocity and our momentum. Um, and the fact that I was super involved and my co-founders were super involved in making them happy, right? So they had that like white glove experience where they could text me at any time and get a response. You know, I would jam on ideas with them and those ideas would get built. And so... That's almost like a, yeah, technically, is it a growth hack? I don't know. But like, it's a good way to get to that first million dollar ARR, which is you just, you have to make a small group of people really happy. And your unfair advantage as a small team is like, you can work very directly with them. You can have all of the feedback exchanges, whereas other incumbents cannot, right? So, so th that, that is almost like that creates a wedge in almost any market. Um, if there is a product to be built within that market, which is founders are incentivized to, to do that. And then a lot of customers, you know, love that. And it's not something they can get in other products, other more established products. Yeah. It's basically just talk to your customers, listen to them, solve their problems. Yeah. Give them your phone number, like such a small thing, like just here's my phone number, text me anytime. Like which other company, established company that you might be competing with is willing to do that. You know, even we don't do that at, at our current scale, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you also, talking about the, the heat of this like creator economy hype, it sounds like you almost took advantage of it from a fundraising perspective. I don't know if that's true, but you raised a Series A that, I mean, you raised quite a bit of money. Can you just kind of take us inside that and how that happened? Yeah. So, you know, jumping into 2021, so started, we started at a million in ARR. We've now launched publicly. Uh, I'm now starting to like build out the, the leadership team. I'm starting to move away from like, like coding as an IC and hire way better engineers than me. You can rewrite a bunch of my stuff and all of that. Uh, my co-founder, so Andy is finally able to build out his like his marketing team and his sales functions a little bit, right? Because now we're feeling like, okay, there's something about the product that is working organically that we can uh, fuel. So basically 2021, we we end up going from about a million to $4 million in ARR. And then what happens around September, again, I wasn't fundraising, um, but these are 2021 times. So I'd get a lot of this investor outreach. 
I think through a friend, I learned about John Curtius from, from Tiger. And it turns out John's emailed me and I've just ignored the email. And I'm talking to this guy who John's invested in. And he's like, Tiger's awesome. John is the best. And he's telling me that offhandedly. I happen to look at my inbox. I notice there's an email from John. And he tells me, dude, you're crazy if you're not responding to that email. And so I'm like, okay, I guess, yeah, I should talk to John from Tiger. Tiger's a big deal. Um, especially back then, they're moving just super fast and you know, extremely generous terms and everything. So I hop on with John and short call, you know, I do the standard sort of pitch and kind of I thought it'd be a quick intro call. John proceeds to tell me that, you know, Tiger's done all the due diligence on Circle. They've talked to our customers, they know our numbers, and John's gonna send me a term sheet. <laughs> you were not aware of this. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the first call. And we were not thinking about like fundraising, et cetera. Right. And so the term sheet drops in and, you know, it's an okay valuation. Uh, actually, it's an incredible valuation by like today's standards. <laughs> um, so I think it's something like a, a $150 million post. I hope Tiger wouldn't be, mind me um, sharing this information. And, you know, I talked to some of my seed stage investors and just kind of get their opinion. Um, I felt like I owed it to everyone to kind of shop it around a little bit. So I do that. Um, end up hopping on with John again at the end of the week. And, you know, he basically then offers me sort of terms that we can't refuse. And that ends up being sort of a $20 million round at a $200 million post. So about 60x ARR, um, which... Weirdly enough, I don't know if you remember these times well, but I think 100x ARR was more the standard. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not even that unreasonable for 2021. <laughs> yeah, but 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 to me, like, I don't know, 60x still felt like that's a lot. It was a lot. If you look at public comps, yeah, I'm sure if you were if you're publicly traded or even right now, it might be closer to like, I think 10 is usually kind of my like go-to. Yeah, and then you tweak up or down depending on like velocity of growth, quality of the product team under the hood, like how profitable, like how cheap the CAC is, how efficient the business is, all that kind of stuff. But even during like the the pre-COVID times and like the 20, like 2014 to 2020 era, something Core and I and my co-founders would talk about in various capacities is the real valuation of the company is more like a 10x AR. So we'd kind of internalize that. That's the true enterprise value. Um, any other multiples or bullshit are kind of, it's, it's kind of the thought that I'd, um, I'd been trained to sort of believe in and kind of sympathize with. So I was not very carried away in the 2021 times as a lot of other founders were. So I kind of didn't see that as being like incredibly sustainable. So, you know, for me, it's like the 60 X seemed like super reasonable, you know, 200 mil post extremely generous um, sort of terms and everything else. And so that was a no-brainer. So yeah, we closed that round within a week. <laughs> yeah, well, if you think about the long-term value of the business and dilution, like when you raise money, it's not like a, it's often positioned as a fun, like, hey, we raised money. But there's also the other side of like, hey, you gave away some of the business. When I think about just traditionally, you usually sell about 20 to 30% of the company when you do these first couple rounds, your first round, it sounds like it was around 10 to 15%. And then the seed was also 10. The series A also 10. You only sold 10% of the business in each of these cases. So 
you can make the argument of, yeah, the valuation was too high, but if you get through that and continue to build a big business, it doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we're now at, you know, 16 million R. So I hope it's been like a decent bet for, for, for Tiger. Yeah. You could probably say like, oh, it's like, it's, it's, it's the same valuation or like very similar. And that's good. That's probably outperformed the rest of most venture portfolios. Like just keeping it steady or maybe it, it sounds like maybe you're up a little bit if I'm just taking a guess. If you can take us inside, like working with Tiger, how has that been just for founders who are curious about that experience? Yeah. So something I actually really appreciate about Tiger is like, and continue to is like, they're very no BS. So like when we were talking to John, it always felt like he's very direct with us. You know, I'd had other conversations with other VCs and I, frankly, I never got sucked into any of like a, like a, like a pitch where like, you know, people offer like the, the value add and like, quite frankly, it's like, I, I have a lot of faith in the founding team. I have a lot of faith in like the advisors that we have with Ankur, with Conrad, with, you know, Wade Foster from Zapier, who's now my um, CEO coach. Like, I've always felt like I've had everything we need. So, like, I don't need um, sort of a seasoned investor to kind of tell me how to build a company. And Tiger kind of backed that up because when I talked to them about their value add, they were pretty straight up about it that, you know, we back awesome entrepreneurs and we get out of your way. The, the, the value add with us is you don't have to deal with MBS, essentially. And that was the right pitch for me at that, at that time and maybe even continues to be, which is like, yeah, that makes sense. You guys have the capital um, and the, the reputation. And it's like this win-win for, for all of us. You know, we're going to put that money to good use. We are legitimately trying to 100x your money. We're building a great product and going after a massive TAM. And you trust us to do that. Yeah. I mean... I get maybe like a, a pitch for myself. That's usually what I say to founders. It's just like, I think this value add thing is just total BS. Like it's, I think it's a waste of time to, for me to be coming in and like telling you how to run your business. The way I think about it is I just try to be really responsive. It's just like, whatever you need, I'll do it. I'll try to help. But anything I'm going to tell you, like this value that I'm going to add, everyone else is telling you the same thing. So at the end of the day, like, it almost doesn't matter. Maybe you have something super unique. All of the best investors, by the way, in our cap table are that, you know, Encore, Nick, David Tish from Box Group, where it's just whenever we need them, they're there, they're super responsive. Uh, and we try not to need them. And we try to just impress them with our monthly updates. <laughs> and yeah. So on that note, that was actually a question that Dave at Bungalow, who existing investor introduced us, he said, you got to ask him about these investor updates on the clock every month, first of the month, consistently for three plus years, however long you've been doing it. Can you just take us behind the scenes of those updates? Why are they so important? Why are they so good? Yeah, it's it's all about self-accountability, right? So I wrote my first investor update in January of 2020 after having raised that pre-seed, the $1.7 million pre-seed, right? And my mentality was I've raised $1.7 million. I need to 100X this and I need to tell the people who gave me the money how my company's doing. And, and I also need to tell the team how, how everything's going. I need to be honest about everything and I need to be accountable first and foremost to myself because writing the update, you know, is a forcing function. And by the way, Encore is also has been terrific at that. So, you know, I'd always read the investor updates at Teachable. You know, he's always very transparent with the team. So, I just felt like it's just, it's a no brainer to do that. So, um, you know, it's kind of 
turn into this like ritual for me at the end of every month. I have a lot of fun actually writing the update now. Um, and it's no longer just about like the numbers. I mean, like I'm super transparent with the numbers, but I just see it as an opportunity to have a bunch of high leverage communication with my team, with the investors. And it takes maybe a couple hours of my time uh, once a month at most. Um, and I think I, it is not something I was very intentional about, but on there, and if I was to imagine, like if I'm getting these updates month over month for like for multiple years, it builds trust. Cause like you're watching that journey, you're watching me say stuff and either do them or like not succeed. But if I don't succeed, I'm telling you why. So like that feedback loop then also motivates me to want to be honest and to deliver a great update. And so, yeah, it's just super recommended for any early stage founders, like do the monthly update, always report your revenue, always report your churn, like don't BS the numbers um, and just use that as a forcing function to just get better month over month. Yeah. And even on, on the not reporting churn or do report your churn, if you just say like our biggest problem right now is churn because credit cards are getting declined or something. Like if you just, if you dissect it to, to, with your cap table, you have a hundred people, whatever the number is, like I'm sure at least one person in there can be like, I have dealt with this before, or I know this guy, he's like an expert on <laughs> solving credit card churn or whatever the biggest issue is. Yeah, it, it's a newsletter is how I look at it. And you're building and engaging that audience. Yeah, just coming back to everything we're about. And so when you need them, they're there, there for you. You're not just going to investors to ask for help and, you know, they're not going to have any context. Uh, and then just generally, you guys are doing fairly well. What's kind of the state of Circle today? Yeah, so from a from a number perspective, and then maybe I can get into product and sort of vision. You know, we've grown from eight to about 16 million in AR this year. Um, so we grew from four to eight last year, one to four before that. And then this year, it's been eight to 16. Um, and I think that's been pretty decent, especially in the the times that we are in right now. Um, and, you know, the, the goal is to keep, keep that up, right. For how long can we roughly double with a new constraint that I've added, which is, you know, we want to be cash flow positive by sort of early 2025 cash flow positive with, you know, say 12 to $13 million, like in the bank. So something I realized, especially in the last six to 12 months, the macro shifted is like, there's nothing better than like owning your destiny, being cash flow positive, um, to ourselves to the investors, to everyone involved. It's a signal of like building deep, tangible value that your outputs are greater than your inputs. And we can just fund ourselves to, you know, 100 mil plus AR. That way we're never going to have to raise again if we can do that. So I've just set that constraint up for the company that we're going to be cash flow positive no matter what. Now, whether or not we grow like 90% next year or 85% or 100%, I don't know, but we're going to try and grow as fast as we can with that constraint. And we're not going to rush into it, right? So like a lot of founders, when they're not, when they don't have this goal set in advance and they realize, okay, the runway has been dwindling and now we're like at 15 months, at 12 months, it's too late. You can't do anything about it. But as a founder, you have Google Sheets or Excel, you can model it out and say, it feels like if we were cash flow positive, you know, by this time, and we continue to grow at this pace, and here's all of the levers that that will help us grow. It feels like that's that's a decent business. Um, so that's sort of the, the the number side. And from a product and sort of business side, you know, we're now I'd say about a team of 130. One thing we haven't talked about, by the way, is like we're a completely remote international company. So we have 
team members in over 30 countries today. And from a product perspective, you know, a lot of the last couple of years have been about completing that all in one stack. So, you know, we started with just like the, the discussions and the, the spaces or channels. We've added events, we added live streaming, we added payments, we added uh, courses, we added chat. Uh, over the last uh, couple of years, some very exciting plans next year as well to continue to expand the stack, continue to go sort of, you know, multimedia, multidimensional, sync, async, sort of all forms of community. Um, and I think that builds up real value in an all-in-one product. And the challenge for us is always like, how do we build a lot and execute at a high enough caliber so the quality of the product doesn't uh, deteriorate? And I think that's a challenge for me as like a product and edge leader to to get right so there's a lot of different directions we can go based on what you just said you you hinted at some new products launching in 2024 maybe without disclosing what you don't want to disclose can you maybe get into just the broader vision of circle and what we should expect from the company and the product over the next couple years decades the ultimate vision for Circle is to be the one product that helps you build an audience, build a community, build a business, right? And so I'd say to date, we've just been focused on sort of the community part and maybe somewhat the business part as well. Because yeah, we, you know, we let you monetize and you know, our GMB has forexed in the, the past year. I think there's two aspects of the vision that gets me really excited, which is, so, so one of them is like, we can build the ultimate journey product for creators and also for brands. And something we haven't talked about is like a lot of brands use Circle. So like Adobe, Webflow, Framer, uh, Miro, Udacity. So, you know, as we talked about before, like I think the the line between a brand and a creator has been converging a little bit. You know, brands have to kind of front up as creators and creators are now owning in brands and businesses, right? And so it's been fascinating. And that, that was a key realization early on as well as like, it's not it's not really a different product for different personas. I think product is fairly similar. Um, it's about having the flexibility and the building blocks to allow different personas to build different you know forms of a community. So I think for us, it's about number one, having that flexibility. Number two, having the the ultimate journey product of I want someone to be able to start off, you know, when they've barely started to gain some traction on you know, TikTok or YouTube or Twitter or Instagram, um, you know, start with their email list, start with their newsletter on Circle before they need community, before they need events, before they need courses. Grow that into a thriving community. Grow that into a thriving business. And the goal is to be the only product that um, essentially creators and brand needs to scale their, their, their communities over time, right? That's the ultimate, ultimate goal. And I think going back to kind of like the challenges there, I just feel like the vision part to me is so solidified in that if we don't do this, someone else will. Um, and you can think about examples in other verticals like you know Shopify for the e-commerce space or Rippling for the HR space or HubSpot for the you know CRM sales, sort of marketing, customer support type space. Um, I think someone's going to build this product for the creator's ecosystem. We want to be the ultimate product that does that, does that well. Um, and then I think the challenges are all about execution, right? Anytime you're building across such a wide stack with 
with the breadth of functionality, you know, depth is also super important. And, you know, our customers don't compare us to like other products like us. They compare us to like point solutions that may do payments better than us or chat or courses or just the discussions aspect of community. And we have to compete on all of those various dimensions. And the value add that we bring is, you know, we're just one product. So everything's super integrated, all your data is in one place, you know, all your analytics, your workflows, from a cost perspective, you're not paying for multiple products. And so I think the value prop is super obvious. It's more about sort of delivering on that vision. That's the, that's the ultimate challenge. When you mentioned brands creating communities, uh, if I'm somebody listening, maybe I'm not, we touched quite a bit on creators, but just more broadly creating a community in general, like how do you do that around a product or a brand? What have you seen work the best? Yeah, I can actually tell you about how we built our own community. And I've seen a version of that with some of the communities that I mentioned, um, like a Webflow and Framer, et cetera, which is, you know, for us, um, obviously like community was something we had to live and breathe from day one. And so it started out, in that year one of just adding our customers to a community, um, to a circle community where the founders were sort of all in there talking to customers, standard, hanging, right? Um, and what, what's great, by the way, about a com community in the early days is you're also helping scale customer support because, yeah, they may be expecting a response from you or they can share their question and maybe someone else, like another customer, may help them out. Or maybe they can look up whatever their issue is and find a post that someone else made who had the same problem uh, or same question and got resolved, right? So I think that's almost like a no-brainer when you're when you're starting out. And what that started to evolve to is, you know, we started to first just do betas in there as well. So like exclusive um, beta for events, for live streams, for payments, or you know, as we were building these massive features, we would have a group of 10 to 20 customers or beta testers get access, give us all of the feedback in a single sort of private gated um, space within the community. And they'd have that experience that our, our earliest customers did of like, oh, my opinion actually matters. Like I can share feedback and I see that addressed right away. The founders are in there. So like, those those wow moments, you know, you kind of never have to let go of those as you scale, though obviously the scale is a little different. Um, and then what we started doing were sort of events. So, you know, we hired a community manager who then built a community team. Uh, we started to run uh, sort of weekly office hours where any customer can show up and, you know, ask a question, get help. Um, so it's almost like group support and not even support. So it doesn't even have to be like, product related. It could just be, you have a question about how to best build a type of community and, you know, or how to price your membership. And so since then it's, it's been about scaling the community across all of these vectors of like, you've got the sort of more async, like support type community use case. So scale support is kind of how I look at it. You've got the more exclusive betas or sort of VIP groups that we put together. Um, and then you've got the events happening where, you know, you can show up and talk to Circle team members, ask questions, get feedback. And then obviously, whenever we do launches, you know, we have community events where, you know, we'll, um, we'll hop on, we'll show off whatever the new product or feature is. Uh, and again, we'll perform that direct connection with the audience. So 
it's not us or product people or engineers on an ivory tower guessing what people want. We're in there engaging with our customers, talking to them. Um, so it's never a guessing game. Yeah. So it's kind of just like a very hyper efficient way to do support, customer support, customer service, but also feedback and brainstorming. And then also sounds like new products, well, actually launching them. And, and to grow because an engaged member is having an amazing experience if they're meeting people, if they're making friends, or even if they're like getting to talk to the team and get their problems, problem resolved, that's a customer that's going to talk about you to someone and will be super positive about you if you're actually helping them out. That loops back into the, the top funnel of your product, much like it does for creators, right? So you're getting ideas from them. They're getting that sort of high touch experience or semi high touch experience. And all of this feeds back into a bigger audience, a bigger community, bigger business. So one really interesting topic that you mentioned before we started recording, uh, and actually, well, actually we, I think it came out because speaking of Lenny, he had a really interesting interview that came out recently with Brian Chesky at Airbnb. Yeah. we'll we'll link it in the show notes if people haven't watched it yet. Uh, but you do something sort of similar with how you design the team and structure and do your hiring. Can you explain that? So there's kind of two aspects to what makes Circle, let's say, a unique culture, right? So one is, as I mentioned, we're remote international. So we hire globally. We comp people according to maybe like tier two U.S. city. So maybe not like an SF or New York, but maybe for like Austin or something. Uh, but it literally does not matter where you are in the world. And I think that approach has helped us a lot in terms of gaining access to like incredibly underrated talent that wouldn't otherwise um, either work for a company like Circle and also a company like Circle would not be as lucky to get access to them if we were just hiring from, let's say, New York or SF. Um, because it's hard to compete in like tier one US cities. Like you're competing with like, insane packages and scaled companies, you know, and, and the option for a lot of these folks to be founders themselves. Like I don't, I never understand why any startup would want to compete in that talent pool when there's literally the entire world you could hire from. And I almost look at it as like, man, if I like another version of me, if they're, if they're out there today and if they're in like New Zealand or India or Brazil or Colombia, like instead of them having to like, change their life around and like immigrate to the US, which, you know, I kind of was crazy enough to do. Like, what if they could just get an incredible job with real comp and equity wherever they are and just continue to live their life? And so, you know, that's been sort of awesome for us. You know, we do two offsites a year, roughly. So we did one in Cancun last year. We did one in Italy. Actually, we actually did three last year. We kind of split up the, the latter one. So one was Thailand, one was in Italy. And, you know, we meet up as a group two to three times a year. That's a very sort of high touch, like bonding experience. It's literally like you're constantly hugging people and you're telling stories about your life and your kids. It's the opposite of like being in like a, like a cubicle or like an office, right? It's a different vibe altogether. And I love that part of remote company building. And the rest of the time, we're just super heads down working or spending time with our families or, you know, our friends, right? And that's just the kind of life balance that I've 
learned to really appreciate because, you know, I have an eight-year-old daughter. I live out in Great Neck out of Long Island. I like the lifestyle that I have. I would never want to commute into the city. Um, but And yet I get to work with um, super smart people. So that's been kind of one aspect of scale that I think has worked super well for us. And I think, you know, I'm I'm a bit of a contrarian now. It seems like, you know, there's a whole like remote movement and now people are going back in person. I don't, I just don't get that at all. I think it's worked incredibly well for us. I wouldn't change a thing. You know, we have incredibly high like uh, sort of culture amp NPS scores. I don't know, we're super productive, I think, as a team. And I just love the people that we get to work with. And it's so awesome, by the way, when you're like in a Zoom meeting and you have someone from Argentina and someone from India and someone from Colombia all talking to each other and learning to collaborate and shipping awesome products together. Um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't change a thing about the remote part. And then in terms of company building, what's been interesting is like, so I kind of see myself as someone who has like dual responsibilities at Circle, maybe a little similar to you know Brian at Airbnb, where one aspect of my job is I manage our leadership team. So your standard, like my co-founders and our head of finance or head of people, head of customer support. And the other aspect of my job is I directly manage our engineering leads. Um, and so we have about seven teams at Circle. It's very intentional about structuring those teams very early on which is a mistake I think we made at Teachable is that, you know, we were like a monolithic team for for too long, I'd say. So we're now a team of uh, about 45 um, engineers and designers. Um, and, you know, it's a fairly flat organization in that NIC is no more than, let's say, two levels uh, removed from me. And I think that structure is one I would highly recommend for like product-focused companies with sort of product-focused CEOs because you get to have your cake and eat it too. Like you get to run the company, set the culture, do all of the the CEO stuff, and you get to really have your hands on the steering wheel when it comes to the product vision, the strategy, the execution, which by the way, then inspires the team to do great work because you are connected to them. You don't have an intermediary like a, like a head of product or you know, some like a, a bureaucracy in there kind of like repeating your vision to the ICs. You are in there day to day, almost on the assembly line as, you know, Elon sometimes describes himself. That's the vibe that that is set. And I think it it's highly energizing for, for strong ICs in my experience. And then doing all of this remotely is an extra challenge to this slightly unique way of doing it. What have you learned on doing that efficiently. Yeah, so again, I feel like it's less of a challenge because I think remote forces you to write, to document, to be async wherever you can, right? And so we've had that skill set from day one. You know, we have sort of updates and docs flying around left and right. You know, what shouldn't be a meeting shouldn't be a meeting. <laughs> and I think people forget that in in-person environments where like, yeah, maybe it is fun to get into a room and to banter with your colleagues about stuff. But also, like, if you're super busy, like, is is there, like, is 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 it time to do that really, like, within the context of, like, a status update meeting, which could have been, like, a like a Slack message that someone just skimmed past and kind of got the gist of? I think people don't um, sort of contextualize the dynamics and the, the cost of all of this. You know, I've recently learned about Toby from Shopify putting like a price on each or a cost on each calendar event to 
communicate to his employees about how expensive a meeting is, right? And so my understanding is if you're a Shopify employee, your calendar invites have a cost in there that tells you how expensive a certain meeting is, right? And so, by the way, I'd love for that to be a product one day if anyone's building that. <laughs> I think even if you don't have the exact cost in mind, like you can tell that, okay, if there's like 10 people in a room, that's a super expensive meeting. And are you really getting the value of like 10 people 10 people's like best ideas and their best selves? Or are most people just like barely listening and tuning out? And there's maybe one or two people, likely the highest people on the the corporate ladder. Spewing. (laughs) Like, yeah, spewing brain dumps that no one is listening to, right? Which is what a lot of these companies become, which is why it's dreadful to work at a lot of these companies uh, many years down the line. And I think remote kind of forces you to think like, what is it that should be a sink? What is it that should be sync? Like, you know, people run out of um, uh, sort of steam eventually on Zoom. And that's a real thing. Like, yeah, it's hard to fit through like eight hours of Zoom meetings. But also, you can maybe cut down the amount of meetings you need to sit through. Because in a well-run company where people are documenting stuff, people are sharing updates, async, there's less to meet about. And so what I like to do is like, I like to make my meetings as fun as, and meaningful as possible. So it has to feel like the opposite of like a boring status update. It has to feel kind of fruitful uh, when, you're, when you're in there. And actually on the note of the, uh, the price of a meeting, there's this really funny guy on Twitter, Soren Iverson. He, he does these basically fake product tweets. So one example will be on Tinder. You can see like how much like what the person's response rate is or like it will call out their them lying on their profile. Oh, and, I've seen this. Yeah. And one that he's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like I think one of them is like on a on a airline booking, like booking your flight on Delta. You can like steal a seat, like pay to steal a seat. And one of his funny designs was actually cost of a meeting, where it was like each each calendar invite will show the cost of the meeting. Um so it's it's funny. It's like it actually is like a real tangible thing. And when you look about, are you, when you're calculating like different metrics or numbers or efficiency of the business, it's like kind of like a hidden cost. It's like, we have too many meetings and nothing gets done. You're technically spending money on those people's salaries and the time. And like, if you got, like you said, 10 people in a meeting, if everyone's making a hundred bucks an hour, hour meeting, thousand dollar meeting. Yeah, it's just a no-win situation in those bad meetings. Like literally no one is winning. <laughs> There's no net benefit to any any entity. Whereas I do feel like remote actually forces you to think about that dynamic a lot more. And as a result, I mean, it's also, by the way, easy to get remote wrong. So like if we lean too hard on async and if we lost the sort of human connection and the vibe, that's not great either. Or if we went like, if you know, if I, if I was just like in Zoom calls, literally all day, every single day, as with our leadership team, that would not be great either. So I think you have to strike that balance. But I just, I I found it easier to strike that balance in a remote environment than I did in person. So I had Wade Foster at Zapier on the podcast, I think two weeks ago, we actually, oh, sorry, it was a couple couple weeks ago, we published it the day that, that we are talking. I usually ask people like, hey, do you have a suggestion on another guest we should have on the podcast? He suggested you. And he he described it as like, yeah, it's like this guy, you probably haven't heard of him, this founder, this is his company. He's just really impressive. I work, I'm his, I'm his coach. I was like, 
I have heard of him. He's coming on the podcast. How did you get Wade as your coach? And has it been beneficial? And what's the relationship look like? Yeah, Wade is one of the most incredible people I've ever met in my life, actually. So Wade actually came on as a seed investor at the 40 mil um, seed round. And so he was just one of those like maybe 10 to 20K checks. And yeah, it made sense. Like, you know, I love Zapier, like Circle is a Zapier partner and so on. And I'd heard of Wade's story kind of in passing of like, yeah, these are the guys who never really raised like a VC round after pre-seed. You can now see like why that would appeal to me as if like, to me, it's like yeah, that that is the ultimate success story. Like I'm more impressed by that than I am by the unicorn that that's on their series F at a whatever billion dollar valuation, right? That was an inspiration for you was what would tap you did. Yeah. So when I first talked to Wade, when he was investing, um, so I think it was like maybe a half an hour call and Wade gave me so much incredible advice about all of this stuff. Actually, Wade was one of the people I talked about whether I should raise the, you know, the four mil sort of, you know, the, what is it? I don't know if it's called like a party round or like whatever, but that, or like the institution round. And Wade was one of the people I reached out to and spoke with and just incredible advice. And so on and off, you know, maybe talked to him, I talked to him maybe once a quarter after that. And just, he would have the most awesome advice after every single call. I would have to debrief on that for myself. I, you know, I might sometimes used to share certain notes with my, with my co-founders and it would just always end up being like, I just had the most incredible conversation with Wade ever. It's game changing. I, I, and I did not have that experience, if I'm being honest with anyone, I talked to <laughs> during that journey of like, oh my God, there, there's so much that I've just learned. And each time it's like every conversation with Wade um, had continued to blow my mind. So when I was looking for a coach, you know, one of the conversations that I reached out to him about is like, hey, can you help me think through like, what is it that you would look for in a CEO coach? And how did you get your CEO coach? So Wade kind of talked me through his reasoning. Um, you know, he has a coach himself um, who's sort of more a professional type of coach from my understanding, less so like a founder. But Wade talked me through that dynamic and how helpful it was. Um, Wade introed me to his coach. I did a bunch of these open-ended conversations like potential coaches. I got super sold on the, the value add of a coach. And eventually I just kind of went up to Wade and said, I love the coaching model, but I've been thinking a lot about like, I wasn't as blown away talking to those professional coaches as I am every time I talk to you. Um, is there any world in which you would uh, consider being my coach using a very similar format to the one that you follow with, with your coach? And, um, you know, we'll talk you know, sometimes like once a month, sometimes could, could end up being once a quarter, like it, like really whenever you're free, whenever I need to reach out, it's ended up being a roughly sort of once a month. And sort of the thing that I have to offer, because, you know, Zapier is a $5 billion company. Wade is a founder, CEO. Wade has many better things to do. The thing that I have to offer, the only thing is that I will be super transparent with you about all aspects of everything that I'm facing. And maybe it's a way for you to also bounce certain ideas to kind of get insight into like other dynamics. And also, by the way, to be like, a, to be someone who offers insights and guidance without ever having to implement it. And I will tell you about the follow through. So it's almost like, like you can experiment on your um, insights and your ideas through me. 
give me that feedback. I will implement something and I will tell you how it went and there'll be more data for you. So essentially that was a pitch to Wade and with a little bit of equity, but nothing meaningful, I'd say, compared to kind of the actual value that he has to offer. Um, and he, he agreed. And it's just, I found Wade to be super, super awesome guy. And I often get the sense that like, you know, he's what, 12 or maybe 11 or 12 years into Zapier. He doesn't have to do any of this stuff. Um, I think he just deeply loves loves all of it. And that's inspiring to me because I see myself as wanting to be that 10 years in, 15 years in of like, when you have someone who's like world-class, who's crushing it, and eventually they're purely in it to crush it um, and not in it for like the financial reward or to have an exit or to, you know, do the next thing. Um, you know, every time I talk to Wade, I'm like, yeah, Zapier is going to 10 to 100x where they are right now. It's just like that kind of passion really rubs off on me. And so yeah, it's just incredible value add if you can ever convince another founder CEO that you look up to, to, you know, be a mentor or coach, I would just incredibly highly recommend it. So it almost sounds like the pitch to them is maybe there's like an equity component, like a small, they do benefit financially and maybe they just invest, like they're an angel investor. That's the equity component. But yeah, it, it sounds like it's, I will be in the weeds and I'll share exactly what I'm, and hopefully you'll learn some things from me too. I hope to be a mentor to someone else someday too. So I just feel like it's just such an underrated thing for founders to do. Um, and the other thing I found, by the way, is like no one truly empathizes with all of your struggles unless they are in that situation, unless they're a founder themselves. And I found founders to be like the most honest and like altruistic people in, in, in terms of how they go about like giving and sharing advice, um, you know, investors and folks in your team, even, even your co-founders at times just do not have that level of maybe exposure and honesty to do that as do like sort of seasoned founders and CEOs. That's partially why I like running my own fund. I mean, it's not the same running an investment firm in a startup is not the same, but there's elements of it where it's like your, your name's on the door. You have to do everything. There is some pressure in some sense. And you do feel some of the same, like, life or death, you got to do things, you got to get them done. So it makes it a little bit more relatable as an investor, as somebody who ha who didn't previously like build and scale and exit a startup. So one, one question we've been asking a lot lately, there's this Instagram page, it's called Traded VC. Everyone loves it. They post a lot of, a lot of great content for founders, some serious stuff, some funny stuff. They have a question for you. Do you have any one single piece of advice for other founders? Yeah, I think I mean, there's a lot of advice, but my if I if I get one piece of single advice, I'd probably say like don't bullshit yourself. Like don't get high on your own supply. Question yourself, be super humble, be transparent, get all of the feedback and 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 stay relevant, stay true to yourself because I I really feel like a lot of the 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 downfall and the the downward spirals like a lot of those situations stem from a founder who's just not been very honest with themselves for, for many months or many years. Um, I think that is a kernel of what, what ends up in a story where like, you know, you hear of startups that scale up to hundreds of millions and then eventually have to shut down or exit at a lower than 
ideal kind of valuation, it's likely because the founder has been telling themselves a narrative, let alone others, um, that is not true and has not kept up with the reality. That's fair. There's When you really think through a lot of those maybe high profile situations we've thought of, there are cases where it was going really well. Like it's a lot of, sometimes the media will paint a narrative of like, oh, the investors were scammed or screwed or the employees or the customers. Maybe that's true, but there are a lot of cases where it was, it was, it was real. Like there was truly tangible things that were, that were being done. So a great quote I've heard, by the way, is like, you have to deal with reality or reality will deal with you. I, I found that to be like so true in life. I've never heard that before. You have to deal with reality or reality will deal with you. Wow. Okay. That's probably a good way to a good way to end it. The meat of all the discussion. Do you want to just do a little bit of rapid fire? Just a couple quick questions. Sure. Do you have a favorite emerging creator right now? Someone we should all keep an eye on. Yeah. I love a guy named Miles Snyder. His name is. So Miles, I think he's, he's born in a family of chefs. He's a cook uh, himself. And Miles, very akin to like the, the narrative that we talked about, you know, started a newsletter, I think it was on Substack, teaching people sort of recipes, built an audience, started a circle community and online course called 8020 Cooking. And he does these like four week cohorts where, you know, you get in, it's very immersive. It's like multiple live sessions a week. You're in there with a bunch of people who are learning to be, I wouldn't say like professional chefs, but like great cooks at home. And I just find his story to be so inspiring with the background that he comes from. And, you know, I've been sort of like uh, lurking in his community a little bit. And I just find like the, the vibe in there is so awesome. And I'm like, man, I would love a world in which there's like, you know, maybe thousands or hundreds of thousands of miles out there kind of doing something awesome for the right reasons, having incredible impact and making a ton of money. I love it. Do you have a favorite go-to interview question when hiring? One thing I do with my interviews is like, I like to keep them fairly informal and non-standardized. Um, I find that the best conversations are ones that you don't plan too much for and things spur up in the moment. And so what I just like to do is like, I get deep with people about what they're passionate about. I want them to share stories about you know, the, the moments in their life that kind of set them up on a, uh, an incredible trajectory, or maybe, you know, they failed on a certain project or initiative that they learned a lot from. But I, I just like getting sort of deep and personal with people. And I find that through that, you get to learn a lot more about the person than sort of, you know, short, smart questions to which people have sort of planned and uh, wrote answers for. Last question. Do you have a favorite new startup or tool that you've discovered or started using recently? I actually love ChatGPT. <laughs> I use it honestly as like a sparring partner where I will tell ChatGPT about like what I'm thinking and I'm thinking about it. And I will ask it to respond to me and kind of critique my ideas. And it's, it's, it's very different from how I see a lot of other people use it. So I don't use it for like to automate myself or like, you know, to write on my behalf or anything. Um, by the way, Wade is someone who's awesome talked about this topic because he does use it, I think, in the right capacities. I use it more as like a like a reasoning engine thought partner of like, here, here's an entity that has like, you know, unlimited patients who you could talk to day and night 
about your ideas and it keeps getting smarter and smarter. Yeah. It's just a large language model. Like you, you can't, it's, it's, it's like favorite way to respond to your questions. Like you can't take it off. Like it's just, it'll keep going. It'll keep answering. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the app especially is so good because you can be lying in bed and be like, I wonder what chat GPT will, will think of this. So, you know, I'm, I'm big into like reading philosophy. So I will often have it ask like super obscure questions about like, you know, Plato and Nietzsche and like, what would X, Y, Z think about the other person's argument? And I find that it's extremely smart and on point and just continues to get better. I mean, yeah, it's the most like trite and like obvious answer, but it is truly life-changing where a lot of this is headed. Yeah. Where have you experimented with any new LLM related features in Circle or I guess, have you done any or thinking about any? Or do you think there will be any in the future? Yeah, yeah. So we, we actually did a, a launch for what we call Community AI back in mm-hmm. June. And the idea with that was, you know, this is sort of in the, like right when a lot of the stuff started popping off. And so we did like a bit of an ha- internal hackathon. So we launched a content co-pilot for um, long-form writing, especially for the community managers and creators. Uh, we launched sort of automated transcriptions for, for any video that you upload. Uh, we launched a machine learning model for activity scores to measure engagement. And we are working on something it's incredibly exciting in this context of blending AI with the knowledge within these communities. So I'm not quite a believer in like, you're going to have AI bots talking to each other because I feel like communities, the opposite, like communities are an area where you want humans to interact with each other. And like, I, I think even in a post AI world, community matters a lot. But I am a fan of helping the community builders get a lot more done and helping the the members get answers to stuff and to all of the sort of social wisdom and knowledge that might be in there. And so we're kind of solving for for AI within the the landscape of community in those um, those two areas. Interesting. When will we see those publicly? 2024 sometime? Definitely 2024. Yeah, I think we're planning something towards kind of Q2. Um, and it's a new thing, by the way. I, like, we're not looking at any other product or comparison that exists. I just feel like when you apply a lot of these concepts from first principles to an area like community, um, it's just the opportunities are endless. And there's just so much stuff to like experiment with. Yeah, I'm excited to, to see it when you guys launch it. Well, thanks for coming on. This is awesome. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, this is an incredible conversation, Turner. I've, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. And thank you for listening. If you want to miss future episodes, subscribe to the newsletter, The Split, in the show notes. If you want to support the show, follow, like, retweet, rate, drop in the group chat, and send this to your favorite creator who's still using Facebook groups for their community. Thanks again to Sid for coming on and to Deal for supporting the show. I hope you learned something new. See you next time.